for the week of November 13th, 2022, this is Showbiz Sandbox episode 599, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in the metaverse, I'm Michael Giltz. How is the metaverse, Michael? Uh, you know, wait a second. It's quiet. If, if you're in the metaverse, that means you haven't been laid off. I've lost my job. Yeah, you haven't been no, laid off. No, no, I lost my job and I have more time to spend in the metaverse. Yeah, so sorry for the people at Facebook. Um, about 11,000 people are being laid off. Endeavor announced a hiring freeze, I think. Uh, there's lots of contraction. Warner Brothers Discovery is firing people. Well, that, so that was happening of, whether whether there was yeah. a, a retraction or right. not. There's a lot of a lot of turmoil in the entertainment biz right now. So, and you know, our thoughts go out to Jay Leno, host of the Tonight Show for decades. Uh, hurt in a car explosion. A car of his exploded in his garage or something. Uh, obviously, we know he loves cars and has a lot of them, and he got badly burned. He's in the hospital, so we hope the best for him, and we hope the best for you. We had an election last week. We're, you know, It's very exciting here. Um, I know everything's has settled down now, so Sperling and I will be able to do a string of shows. We had that horrible three-week gap with no shows at the longest gap in history, so now we're very excited to be able to just keep doing one show um, after another. Uh, we're not um i have yeah uh actually so next week there won't be a show because it's thanksgiving week and i am not going to be in town and it's the 600th episode so we want to bring everybody oh so we, we have to horrible person yeah it's uh I, yeah sorry Ah, uh, so happy Thanksgiving, I guess, in advance. We won't be able to talk to you that week, but we'll be there the week after to celebrate our 600th episode, look at the Thanksgiving movies and how well they did, discuss Glass Onion, Knives Out, did that movie, who went? Even though we won't have box office grosses, that's the movie most people will be talking about, a movie that won't be on the box office charts, but that's two weeks from now. What are we going to talk about this week? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are still counting all of the ballots. Did we come in first place for best podcast ever? Or, you know, second? Did we win a grant? Anyway. I was talking about the election. Oh, well, the midterm, yeah. In the U.S., we had midterm elections, and they seemed to bring the entertainment business to a halt, which is beyond true. Everybody was just glued to their, refreshing their internet browsers on whatever news outlet they were on. It was not a big week for news in the entertainment business. So the podcast should last, what, like, Michael, with us, probably 90 minutes, maybe 100 minutes. 100, 100 minutes, yeah, yeah something yeah. like that. Well, we'll see. Director Paul Haggis lost big in a civil trial, not criminal trial, and Mariah Carey lost big in a holiday trial. So I guess... Holiday, holiday, yes. Well, okay, well, if, you know, here's the thing. If it's an honor just to be nominated, we had a lot of winners when it came to the Grammys. The list of nominees is just out, and we will pour over them in real time. On Inside Baseball, we'll discuss why there's no Inside Baseball this week. Did we mention there was an election, <laughs> by the way? Because that's probably why there's nothing going on. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on Wakanda Forever. I mean, last week's box office. And while I'm doing that, Sperling will look for the box office from France 
to find out if the new toy, that re- French remake of the American film The Toy, which was a remake of the French film The Toy, uh, what its box office total is. I can't figure that out. Last week it was at 5.6 million. What's the update? That will happen in real time. This whole episode is very exciting. We are looking at box office around the world, and the number one movie, which I saw over the weekend at the drive-in, is Black Panther Wakanda Forever. The movie opened to $331 million worldwide, said in a November record in North America, doing all sorts of good stuff. Uh, Marvel is where it's at, certainly this year in terms of the box office, baby. That's where Top Gun and Marvel. It cost about $250 million to make. It grossed more than that in its opening week. So the movie is off to a very strong start. I also like the soundtrack a lot. That's the biggest movie by far. I saw it. I thought it was a little better than the first one. Did you see it, Sperling? I did not because I'm waiting to see it this week and I missed the, the you know, they had a screening and I missed it. And so, you know, I, I want to see it uh, this week, I guess, with my daughter who okay. couldn't go last week. Ah, well, very, very nicely done. At number two around the world is another superhero flick, or in this case, a supervillain. It's Black Adam with Dwayne Johnson. That made $32 million this week, 10% of what Black Panther made. It's at $352 million worldwide. Looking to get to four or $500 million, it will certainly get to four. If it can get to $500 million, that will look like a pretty solid win. Right below that is a very big hit. It's One Piece Film Red, a Japanese anime film. It's the 15th in the series. It's the highest grossing so far. It made $22 million this week, and it's at $181 million worldwide. There are no new openings until November 25th in South Korea and I think Southern Australia. Uh, I have SA, but it's not South Africa. I think it's Australia for some reason. But what's interesting there is I don't think it made $22 million this week. We just caught up with what the grosses were from the last few weeks. Some territories reporting late. So we have a new $22 million pile of cash to report for the film. It's kind of like when the election results roll in. Suddenly you get a big city, uh, you know, tranche. And you say, oh, suddenly they jumped 40,000 votes. It's something like that. So, so, that, so all that action for one piece film red did not happen this week. But its new total is $181 million. And that's $22 million more than it had the last time we had any numbers. And that is why the Republican senator from Japan will now wait. Oh, okay. No <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> no, no. Uh, Pray for the Devil, the exorcism flick, that made $14 million this week. That's at $32 million worldwide. And another big animated hit from Japan. This is Suzumi no Toshimari. It's a new film by director Shinkai Makoto. He's the guy who did Weathering With You and Your Name. If you're an animation fan at all, you probably recognize those movies. They were huge blockbusters. And like some of Pixar's movies, they really show how broad a range animation can do. It doesn't have to just be fairy tales and stuff like that. These are very interesting modern films. This one is about a teenage girl who is befriended by a boy who's turned into a chair and she has to close the doors of disaster all over Japan to stop disaster from happening. Of course, it's a contemporary film. I can't wait to see it. It opened to $14 million. It's the biggest opening yet for director Shinkai. So that's very exciting to see. Suzumi will certainly come to the United States and it's very well reviewed like all his other uh, recent films. So he's a real major talent. Uh, He's not, doing what Hayao Miyazaki did, but he is certainly the standard bearer for animation in Japan coming forward. 
Below that is Ticket to Paradise, Julia Roberts and George Clooney. They made another $13 million. That movie's at $150 million worldwide. Lao Lao Crocodile made about $9 million. And in India, a new... Oh, no, I'm sorry. I thought it was an Indian film that maybe opened in China, but it turns out it's a Chinese thriller, I think. It's called The Tipping Point. It opened in China. It made $9 million. It's the number one film at the box office. And if you can clarify what it is... Let us know. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and uh, leave us a voicemail. We will actually play it on one of our future episodes. You can call 888-567-SAND. That is 888-567-7263. And we're on Twitter, where we are now, still not verified, uh, and uh, <laughs> nor are we paying for it. Uh, and uh, we're going to change our name to uh, Showbiz Elon, I think, maybe. Uh, and, and anyway, uh, at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle for now. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. The horror flick Smile keeps chugging along. That's at $210 million worldwide. In China, the comedy called Hey Bro! Or maybe give me five. Uh, it's a riff on Back to the Future. That's about to hit the $80 million mark. I don't know the budget of that film, but I do know the Indian film Kantara. That cost about $2 million, and it's at $45 million and counting. This week, it made $5 million alone. That's after seven weeks at the box office. This has really been a big word-of-mouth hit. A straight-out-of-the-box hit is the Chinese drama Homecoming. That's at $215 million worldwide. Then the other movie I saw over the weekend, The Banishees of Inishirin, from director and writer Martin McDonough, the playwright and film director. That made $4 million this week. It's at $11 million worldwide. I quite liked it. It will be on my best-of-the-year list. Ooh, and wow. scrolling down, uh, I'm not sure we have any other stories to tell there. Uh, Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans, his new movie, opened up in four locations to $40,000 per theater. Not a lot in my book for a Spielberg movie, but he's trying to draw an older audience, and they have not been flocking back to the theaters. Hopefully they'll do that for Knives Out, the new one called Glass Onion. Spielberg got them to show up. It just wasn't an overwhelming number, but of course there's lots of reasons for that. Yeah, I don't necessarily know that I would take that as uh, you know, indicative of its commercial potential. Yeah. But, you know, uh, speaking of Glass Onion, I don't know if you noticed uh, over the weekend uh, during football games, American football, where they play with their hands, uh, they mm -hmm. uh, Netflix aired several commercials for Glass Onion. And they were very effective commercials. It made me I was like, oh, I didn't know oh, that. Now I know what the movie's about. Ooh. <laughs> well, there you go. So um, we'll have to see how that does, but we won't know based on the box office. We do know that DC Films was doing great at the box office for the last few years. Almost all their flicks were clicking, commercially at least. Walter Hamada was in charge, but for some reason, they all decided, ah, oh, he's got to go. I don't know why. Now he's landed at Paramount. And I thought, this guy's a great talent. He's overseen these movies. They're all, you know, Aquaman, you know, big, big success stories. He's at Paramount, and his, his purview, his, his task is to make low to mid-budget horror flicks. That's what he's mostly going to be focusing on for Paramount. So I'm surprised that it's such a narrow focus for Walter Hamada. Uh, perhaps it makes sense based on his prior career, but still, I'm a, I'm a little surprised that it wasn't a, a broader portfolio for him because uh, I thought he did a great job at DC. I wasn't quite sure why they wanted to force him out. I think that might be a holding place, maybe. Like, hey, well, we don't have a spot for He's known for... 
He's known for Conjuring and all those movies. That's what he did at New Line. He turned them into a billion-dollar franchise, so that's where he made his oats. But I, I would have thought he had grown beyond that, so they'd want to say, well, this guy can do anything. Uh, but clearly, that's, that's where he made his bones, and he'll go about and do it again, I'm sure. But that's, uh, that winds up the box office and moves us into, because Sperling did not find any info on the new toy, I take it. I, I've been frantically searching. And uh, by the <laughs> Sorry way- Sorry to give you that task. They wouldn't give you, uh, in France, they don't give you uh, money. They give you uh, attendance. So I wouldn't be able to tell oui. you uh, how much it made. Anyway, I could tell you that you know 400,000 people saw it or something to that effect. Uh, and I don't well, have speaking it. of money, speaking of money, director Paul Haggis was found liable in civil trial for rape, and he's now been ordered to pay $2.5 million. Another trial of Danny Masterson, the actor, is just winding up. Closing arguments are just being made as we speak. And then there was another trial, this in the land of Christmas. And in the land of Christmas, Mariah Carey was found guilty not guilty she lost that's what we know mariah carey cannot claim the mantle of the queen of christmas okay that's no no and that is absolutely no one is the king of easter or the queen of christmas or the elf of elf it's like no you know what she said right after she right after she got that news um what what about princess (laughs) what about diva uh yes so i think that was a fair ruling from my ignorant layman's understanding of you know christmas has been around for a thousand couple thousand years and you cannot trademark it so anyway (laughs) so well i'm sure we're talking about music now now first of all i I did want to point out something that i read over the weekend that uh Mm -hmm. and i've read this numerous times from different angles about all of the people who used to be Scientologists who now find themselves in legal trouble, a lot of it civil, some of it criminal. I don't know what to believe there. But anyway, uh, it was brought about, up. Believe about what? You don't know what the, to believe well, about the whole what? Paul Haggis of it all uh, that, that he. Well, what do you mean? If somebody was found guilty in court. That means civilly. Yes. They were found guilty. Yeah. Um, well, liable, liable, right, because yeah. it was not a criminal trial. Yeah, yeah they were found. Uh, I, I think you should find that the evidence was there and convinced the jury that he was he was liable for attacking and assaulting and raping somebody. What else would you draw from that? Uh, sometimes people can be ex- win in court and you go, yeah, but about 20 people showed up and said you did it and I'm willing to believe them. And so it doesn't mean you always, you can still be seen as guilty in the eyes of the public. Johnny Depp. But, you know. Perfect example. Yes, exactly. But now you yeah. were talking about music, right? So mm-hmm. I, I would imagine we're now going to talk about the Grammys where, where you will tell us. So uh, listeners, be warned. Michael will, during this segment, probably at some oh. point, talk about how the Grammys are mistimed, to which I would say, <laughs> I agree, because especially this year, sometimes, some years it's not so bad. This year, it's atrocious. Cue Michael. Well, it's... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's been going on my whole life. The Grammys are just always out of sync because they close off the nomination process right before the big holiday selling season in which some of the biggest albums of the year are released. Compare it to the Oscars. Now, there are a lot more albums in the Grammy world, so it's a lot harder to stay on top of them. They need a little more time. But imagine if they shut down Oscar nomination eligibility in October 
which means all the big Oscar movies, all the big contenders that come out in November for Thanksgiving and December for Christmas would not be eligible for 14 months from now. Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans, uh, Avatar, The Way of Water, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Imagine all these, uh, the Banishes of Inishirin. Imagine if all those films were not eligible for the Oscars in February or May, whenever it's in May. Imagine if you had to wait till 2024. By the time that rolls around, you're going to be saying, oh my God, that movie is so old. That was like 10 years ago. And that's what's going to happen with the Grammys. The new Taylor Swift album, the new Drake album, the Black Panther Wakanda Forever soundtrack, Bruce Springsteen. None of these people are eligible for this year's Grammys because they're just announced them and the albums just came out. They have to switch the Grammys to May or June. Make it a summer kickoff event. And I know that's complicated. There's Olympics. There's all sorts of things that conflict. Or April. But this is April. It's yeah, well, right. If they need a little time, though. But yeah, whatever happens, you've got to let the albums released in November before Black Friday and then early December qualify because you're cutting off the biggest stars of the year and making them wait 14, 16 months. And then you get Silk Sonic saying they'll never be eligible for album of the year because, you know, they won so many last time. They're like, we're done. So it's just nutty. So, but there are some surprises. There are some fun. We're looking at this pretty much with you. The big overview is, all right, Beyonce. Beyonce got eight or nine Grammy nominations. Her husband, Jay-Z, got five. They are tied at 88 nominations. They are the two people with the most Grammy nominations in history. Do you think that's they the fight at home? Like, marriage. Like, like, that's the way to keep a happy marriage, tied at 88. No, they don't fight at all. I got 88. You got 88. I love you. But do you think like maybe they're like, oh, hey, um, you know, I got more Grammy nominations this week. So you take out the garbage. <laughs> well, I think she says, uh, I have 28 wins, dude. <laughs> I have 28 Grammys, actual Grammys. That's really close to the all time record. If she can win three, she will tie Sir George Salty, who won a gazillion classical Grammys over the years, who has 31 trophies to his, uh, in his cabinet. So if Beyonce can get three, she ties the record. If she gets four, she will be the all time leader in Grammy wins. However, she has never won album of the year. Will she do it this year? I'll tell you who she's competing with. It is, um, where are their names? Okay, the big contenders are Beyonce, Adele, Harry Styles, Kendrick Lamar, and Lizzo. Why? Because all of them are nominated for Album of the Year, Record of the Year, and Song of the Year. Some big contenders like Kendrick Lamar or Bad Bunny, who might have competed with them, they were not nominated. In fact, Bad Bunny only got like two nominations, which is crazy that he didn't get any Record or Song of the Year nominations. He's the biggest act of the year i think overall uh arguably with harry styles right up there with him well i gotta but tell you i don't real, know why you say he's mm -hmm. the biggest it's in the name his music is bad bad bunny is bad right in the name <laughs> that, that's right so we're you know some people think record and song of the year are the big contenders i'm a traditionalist i think it's about album of the year always album of the year and there's a fun surprise there the first name on the list abba abba got an album of the year nomination for voyage it's not a shock because last year they got uh, a record or song of the year nomination for their first new music in decades. This is their last album, they say. Uh, if they won it all, that would be kind of a classic Grammy move. But ABBA is up for album of the year. So is Adele with 30, Bad Bunny with Un Verano Sinti, uh, Beyonce with her dance album Renaissance, Mary J. Blige, a big surprise with Good Morning Gorgeous. 
Uh, Brandy Carla with In These Silent Days, one of my favorite albums of two years ago. By the way, that's a, this album came out, you know, ages ago. And she's even put out a concert film and in a sort of an acoustic version of the album called uh, In the Canyon Haze. It's a version of this album, which I think is even better. That makes me love the album all, all the more all over again. Coldplay with Music of the Spheres. I'm falling asleep at that nomination. Kendrick Lamar for Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers. Oh, Lizzo for special and Harry Styles for Harry's house. So Harry the Styles question is, is will Beyonce win, win, win. will Beyonce win for album of the year? You know, she is so overdue, but Renaissance is a dance album. And I just can't imagine having listened to the album that enough Grammy voters will listen to it and vote for it. It just dance is not their thing. That if there's something going to surprise, it's going to be ABBA <laughs> or something like that. I just don't see it, but she's way overdue, and it's a classic Grammy move to say, well, you should have gotten it for Lemonade, so we'll give it to you for this. So anything can happen. But uh, my And, you know, Bad Bunny, arguably he's the biggest act of the year. Arguably he should just win album of the year. It's a great album. It's a really, really good album. But I don't know. I'm with you, Sperling. I feel like Harry's house. That's just right down the Grammy middle, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it just, well, it just, and, and it's a big album. It had a big single. He's a big star. He's touring with it. It's really a peak triumph for him, you know, from one direction to each solo album being bigger than the one before. So, uh, you know, Beyonce, maybe like uh, another, you know, again, I got to wait. <laughs> well, you know, uh, so he's not only touring with it, he's doing re mini residencies in all of these places and he's in LA now. Uh, and my daughter, my 17 year old daughter went to see him at the Kia forum with her friends, mm -hmm. her 17 year old friends. And they woke you go? up at five o'clock in the morning and they waited in the little line to get their little wristbands. And then they had the redundant wristbands and the numbers on their hands. And the, and, and by the time they, I, I now know way more about these wristbands than I ever wanted to hear. Uh, but uh, <laughs> then they had to wait until five o'clock when they got let in and they were right on the stage and right, right next to the stage. Awesome. And they were, they got quote unquote, baptized by him when he like i guess he sw swigs some water and then sprays it out of his mouth over the crowd and i was like yeah this is not what a father wants to hear about their daughter uh, <laughs> number one and number two i love the fact that that she she said uh you know it was she said when he came out and the first for the first song the all the screaming broke the sound barrier to which i said <laughs> okay a couple things. You're in physics now, okay? You're taking physics in your senior year of high so school. So you should know that that's not a sound barrier. Right. <laughs> that, that you cannot break the sound barrier while you're standing still. It's not the way it works. <laughs> you can break the sound meter, the noise meter. <laughs> so I was just Don't like... Don't spoil their fun. They had a great time. Oh, my God. She literally said, it's okay if I don't get into college now, because I've, <laughs> I was like, really, really, where is Harry's house exactly? I have to have a Because you'll words. be living there. <laughs> you'll be living there because I ain't supporting you, sister. Wow, that's hilarious. Well, I don't know what's going to win record of the year, but if I was voting, it would be as it was by Harry Styles. I just am not sick of the song yet. And 
by all rights, I should be. And that is for the best record of the year. The best thing that just sounds the best, the production design, it doesn't mean you want to hear people cover it. Like say, um, a good vibrations by the beach boys or Hey, Ya by outcast, great records, but you don't want to hear a lot of people cover them. They're not standards. Uh, what will win song of the year, the best written song that you can imagine being covered by other artists and maybe other genres for decades to come. I don't know, but I hope Gail wins because the song is a B C D E F U. <laughs> I just, I just would love the Grammys I, to say. I that. always say like a great example of song of the year would be white Christmas. You could see 50 people singing that song. Right. Right. It's usually a more often a ballad than an upbeat record, but not always, but yeah, uh, that's a classic example of a great, uh, a great song that became a standard. Joni Mitchell's river. That is a standard. That would have been song of the year. Uh, and, and it doesn't mean it can't win both. They often do, but that's the distinction. Best new artist. There's a good mix of 10 new artists. They don't feel like yesterday's news or people who should have been nominated years ago. I recognize Omar Apollo and Anita, the, the Latin artist. Samara Joy is a jazz singer I'm not really familiar with. Manskin comes from the Eurovision, of course. The one act here I know really well, and I love their album, is Wet Leg. That's a UK rock band, mostly women, if not all women. And their album's terrific. It will be on my album of the year list but you know best new artist once it gets past the big three uh that's that's another another really really big category that can really make or break a career so you know we're scrolling down the list there's lots of stuff beyonce will certainly win best dance recording and best dance album so that's two grammys right there so you know she will be poised to tie sir george salty for most Grammy wins. And wait a uh, second, sometimes... George Schulte, he mm -hmm. didn't compose. He waved a stick in the air and made other people play music that other people wrote. I want to recount. Well, that's, we just talked about standards and things that other people perform. He is a conductor who leads orchestras performing great standards like Beethoven's Fifth. That's how it works. It's okay. Best traditional pop vocal album should be retitled the best Christmas album. When Christmas Comes Around by Kelly Clarkson. I Dream of Christmas by Nora Jones. Evergreen by Pentatonix. Uh, I don't think Michael Bublé's album is a Christmas album, but it probably got sold at Christmas. And then Diana Ross. That's, that's not a very good album. That's not a very good list of, of, of albums. Best rock performance and rock album. Uh, I don't know. Oh, alternative. That's where I wanted to talk. Alternative. Again, Wet Leg is up there. I think I would give it to Wet Leg. Arctic Monkeys did not get a nomination for Best Alternative Album, just song. But their new album is terrific. Maybe it came out after the it Grammy nominations checked. were... Oh, Lord. That explains that. That's just ridiculous. So <laughs> that's what, when you have a, a 14, 16-month span between nominations and wins, between albums and songs on the same album, it really gets tiresome. So there's a lot of stuff to go through. Oh, here's one of the exciting wins possibilities best r&b album mary j blige first big nomination like 14 years for album of the year that could be a surprise grammy winner where you know a veteran gets rewarded finally uh she will certainly win best r&b album i think facing off against chris brown and robert glasper lucky day and pj morton best rap album has to be a lock for kendrick lamar best country country music got almost ignored in the top categories why because the biggest country act right around is Morgan Whalen, the guy who got in a lot of trouble for saying racist words. Uh, I was drunk, was his defense. And he's come back and he's as big as ever, but nobody wants to recognize him. Uh, but if I had to pick the best country album, it would be Miranda Lambert with her album Palomino. But Luke Combs won the CMA Entertainer of the Year Award and Album of the Year with Growing Up. So he's probably the front runner. Though, Grammy voters will see... Willie Nelson and go up. Oh, Willie Nelson, I'm voting for him again. <laughs> what does it say about me 
that I look at best rock album and I'm like, oh, look, the Black Keys, I like them. Oh, Elvis Costello, I'm a big fan. Uh, you're like, that, that's my pick for the best album from those five. That proves you're like a Grammy voter. You're older, you don't listen to new stuff as much, uh, no offense, and you like the familiar names that you see, you gravitate to and you vote for them. I, I uh, think that uh, maybe uh, the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs will win for uh, spinning off the edge of the world for best alternative well, music p- performance. Well, they certainly could. The Wet Leg would be a uh, uh, would be an upset, I think, because they're brand new. Uh, it's just my one of my favorite albums of the year. I like the Yeah 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 album, but not as much as I like uh, like uh, Wet Leg. And scrolling down, we still got an exciting one here for you. It's the best comedy album. <laughs> the best comedy album here. Who thinks the Grammys are woke? Up for best comedy album, Dave Chappelle, competing against Louis C.K. <laughs> you know, Jim Dave Gaffigan Chappelle. has to be like, I'd like to withdraw my name. <laughs> right. So Dave Chappelle is nominated for The Closer, the album taken from his controversial show where he was mocking trans people or, or, or however you want to put it. He said, uh, I'm of course. Team, yeah, he, say, he said something that like he said one. Uh, it was a. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Louis C.K. is nominated again after having won a Grammy after admitting, yes, I I did grotesque things in front of women, and I guess that wasn't good, uh, but whatever, I'm moving on. <laughs> so we've got five nominees. I guess we're going to have to root for Randy Rainbow for a little brains, a little talent. <laughs> He's got great videos, so I'm all for it. I would vote for Randy Rainbow. But, you know, the Grammys are fun. Uh, I can see a great show. There's one phone call they made right away. They want a Grammy moment. They want to have those magical collaborations or performances by artists. I can't imagine their first phone call was, I don't suppose ABBA would like to... No? Oh, okay, never mind. (laughs) Because ABBA would be amazing. (laughs) Even if they just showed up to accept an award, it would be fun. But since they don't think they'll win, I doubt they would show up. But man, if they would only perform. If they performed, it would be... I think it would break televisions. Oh, it would. Actually, the ratings would actually go up for the first time in ages. Which brings us right up to the TV streaming numbers. Did you watch The Handmaid's Tale, and do you still watch it? I have not watched The Handmaid's Tale. I, thus, I still do not watch it, because I never started. <laughs> I'm wondering, its numbers are pretty modest now, and I'm wondering if people have stepped away from it and the numbers have fallen, uh, because we didn't have tracking numbers on The Handmaid's Tale when it was big and getting a lot of attention. I assume there's still a faithful audience. One possibility is that the show was big in an era when there weren't as many shows around, so its numbers weren't that big. They were just the it was the talk of the town because it was good and people liked it and won you know the Emmys and all that. So maybe it hasn't fallen in terms of audience. Maybe it has, but it's hard to tell because we never had any numbers. The numbers we have are from Nielsen. They don't cover every streaming service. They certainly don't cover most of the viewing because, for example, I watch everything on my laptop right now and they don't catch that. They don't see that I'm watching Andor every week and saying, this show is so good, I can't believe it. That Star Wars series is great. Um, It's 10 of 12 episodes are out now and it hasn't dropped a beat. Uh, I'm just shocked. It's by far the best thing in the Star Wars universe since The Empire Strikes Back. Wow, that's saying something. That is saying something. Well, it's not saying something that much, really. (laughs) (laughs) It's not saying that much. And I will put aside, I don't play the video games and I have read virtually none of the books. So I imagine there are some really good books and things done in the Star Wars universe I'm just not familiar with. But in terms of films and TV shows, I'm pretty on top of that. And I did like Clone Wars, the animated series, and I did like the... Uh, the Russian guys uh, animated series as well, which is unavailable right now for anyone. But putting all that aside, 
and or is really well made. But we do know a lot of people are watching streaming. We do know that Netflix made big pricey deals with two big names. They yanked Shonda Rhimes away from ABC. They yanked Ryan Murphy away from wherever he was at and gave them big fat paychecks to make stuff for them. And you know what? I think it's working pretty well. This week, the number one show overall is The Watcher, a new miniseries that is now being turned into a series because it was such a big hit and renewed for a second season. It's a thriller from Ryan Murphy, and uh, it's big, 2.3 billion minutes. Also in the top 10, his miniseries Dahmer, which is also a franchise. It's Monster Colin Dahmer, which means they'll pick another monster and make a miniseries about some other horrific person and the horrible crimes they did. Why people like that stuff, I don't know. I already see it. Oh, well. Gacy. Who? Oh, yes, exactly. John Wayne Gacy, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, oof, yeah. So that's there. And also a spinoff in the top 10 was, uh, now it's in the originals, is the Jeffrey Dahmer tapes, a three-part doc spun off from the research material that they found in order to make Dahmer the miniseries. So Ryan Murphy is working very, very, very well for them. He also has a movie on the movie list, Mr. Harrigan's Phone, based on a novella from Stephen King. And now he's saying, ah, maybe I should do a Glee reboot. Uh, maybe I should take it to Broadway. You can do whatever you want, Ryan. You're making people a lot of money. And Shonda Rhimes, Bridgerton, Inventing Anna, two big success stories. She's got a multiple projects in the work, including a drama about workers at the White House and a Bridgerton spinoff. You know, we don't know the exact numbers. We don't know what they're spending and how they can decide whether they're successful for them. But I have to think Netflix is very happy with those two big deals. Well, they spend like $18 billion a year, and I realize that's over the entire globe. Uh, and it's for everything. It's also for acquired series like The Blacklist and right. things like that. Um, but I mean, right. and people are like, oh, but they spend $300 million on Shonda Rhimes. I'm like, yeah, but that's over how many years? And yeah, they're, that's getting, gonna, yeah. they're getting how many hit shows for this? And, yeah, you know, she's been a little slower out of the gate. Ryan Murphy has definitely gone quantity over quality but they're both when they're there they're making hits speaking of the blacklist that's back in the top 10 it's new season begins in january on nbc and i assume that the last season just dropped on netflix and that's why it's jumped back into the top 10 now you can see shows like ncis and gray's anatomy and blacklist are really big draws and when you add an international sales boy these shows are really, really breaking a lot of money. We never find out how much money they make in first run all over the world. Uh, I don't even know if reruns are available all over the world. When Netflix, is that exclusive? Does that mean you can't watch reruns of NCIS or Grey's Anatomy or Blacklist anywhere else? I don't know how that works. If you do, Sperling's already told you how to let us know. I'll try and figure that out, but... It's a big black box when it comes to how much money these shows make overseas, both as original runs, reruns, um, franchises that can get copied locally like Law & Order. There's a lot of money to be made off that stuff, and they don't want to talk about it because they don't want the stars to say, um, could I have a little bit of that? <laughs> and Megamind is back on the list. I was like, Megamind? That's that Will Ferrell and Tina Fey voiced animated film about a villain who decides to become a hero because he's created an even worse villain. And I've forgotten about the movie completely. It cost $130 million to make. It's grossed $320 million worldwide. So it almost tripled its budget. And I imagine at the time we said, you know, it's a family film. It's animated. Those are really valuable in the library. This will probably be a success for them when all is said and done, even though it didn't become a huge hit out of the box. Guess what? This sucker is a franchise. 
You got all sorts of Megamind stuff coming out. All this stuff that's been created, video games, uh, spinoffs. There's a new uh, animated series coming to Netflix. So I'm guessing maybe they just started to re-promote it. They've just started filming something about Megamind. And I, who knew? Do you have kids? Did you know Megamind was a franchise? What? No, I thought it was just a movie. Just the one movie. <laughs> Yeah, apparently not. Apparently not. That's what happens when you look at the list. So we've got a full list in our show notes. We've got a top 10 overall, top 10 originals, top 10 movies, top 10 acquired. We just try to pull out some of the interesting info and talk about that because that's where a lot of viewing is happening. It's a really big deal because there's a lot of eyeballs there. That's why advertising is coming there. The rating systems are coming there. It's really important to pay attention. Wait, what? We should, you said attention. I did say attention. But you also said big deal, which means it must be time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and we tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story, this is unbelievable to me. Netflix is getting serious about live sporting events. What? They said no. Never. No, 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 no. Never, never. Never say never. On the one hand, all the big sports are taken. On the other hand, Netflix made Formula One a hot property in the U.S. for the first time with its documentary series, Formula One, Drive to Survive. Now it's looking at acquiring actual sporting events, kicking the tires on the World Surf League and various tennis tours. But wouldn't they be kicking the tires on four? Anyway. Uh, oh, <laughs> and uh, Netflix is getting serious about live comedy, by the way. Live comedy. Okay, Chris Rock is doing an upcoming special that will stream live. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? I think it's a big deal, right? It's another big player to compete on sports. If they can, you know, zig when others zag instead of dealing with the big ones, create some attention and excitement for sports that are lower down on the list. There's a lot of room to grow. I've always felt the Olympics were underexploited and they can't get access to that right away. But, you know, stuff that's super popular during the Olympics, the other three and a half years, nobody cares. I don't get it. There's, there's, there's attention to be paid. And I think it could work. And I think live streaming is something that they should play with. Why not? They want a growth, right? They weren't going to have ads. They weren't going to have live events. Well, here we go. This next story, well, okay. Employees of the publisher HarperCollins are going on strike. Negotiations between the union and management have dragged on for months. Workers staged a one-day strike, but HarperCollins, they didn't blink an eye. They said, okay, see you tomorrow. See ya. Come back tomorrow. Uh, strike. We're striking. You won't see us tomorrow except outside. No, but we'll see you the day after that since it's a one-day strike. So No. Oh, no. well, now workers are going on strike until a new deal is signed. Okay, yeah, now I guess they will just be outside. Employees want the minimum salary for people at the New York City-based company to raise from $45,000 to $50,000, as well as better family leave and a stronger push for diversity in the Lily White publishing community. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? It's a big deal. There aren't a lot of strikes in the publishing world. Uh, you would think they're very progressive. They're going to treat their employees well. You might go, wow, 45000 I wish I made that. Uh, yeah, but in New York City, that is very, very low, very, very hard. And they work a lot of long hours. And, you know, when you talk about $15 an hour, that's not to get by in New York. That's to get by in small town America. 
You can't get by in $15 an hour. So they're not being greedy. That is not a lot of money after taxes in New York City. Uh, you're sharing a room or two in, in your, in your you know, studio apartment. Uh, they represent the union. It's the UAW, I believe. They rep- No, or maybe that's under- That's the, the United Auto Workers. You're saying like- Yes, it is. Yes, I, I th- actually, I can't remember whether they represent the publishing people or the education people. But their union, whichever it is, reps about 250 workers. So that's a very small slice. But when you're talking about New York City and the big publishing houses, they don't have 10,000 employees. So that's actually a substantial strike. And, of course, in California, there's a huge strike going on. Almost 50,000 people are striking against the University of California education system. Teaching assistants, postdocs, researchers, and graders are seeking a 54,000K starting salary and better child care. Now, this is much more of a leap. Many grad students in the system make in the low 20s, and they're like, we cannot survive on the low 20s, you know, as a grad student and teaching the class and trying, you know, these are the people that keep the system working, and they are making really unconscionable levels of money. Yeah, So there's a lot of striking going on. And there's a good market because there's, you know, there, there were unemployments that have more than 50 year low. So, yeah. And until they actually teach my daughter that you can't break the sound barrier by standing still, then <laughs> I think they need to get back to work. <laughs> but that sounds like inside baseball. Hey, which we don't yeah. have this week. <laughs> Nothing. Inside baseball is dead this week. Oh, I see what you did there. You see, because. First, we do Inside Baseball, right, which is usually, usually not this week, but most often where we, you know, we analyze these headlines that are kind of like, you know, insidery. But then afterwards, we we like to mention a few people who have passed away, who died over the past week. And so you said dead to move us right along into obituaries. A great transition. Very smooth, in fact. Almost. Oh, I probably shouldn't be mentioning it then. Like the. Yeah. Sorry. Hey, did people die this week, Michael? I believe they did. Oh, who? And we're here to celebrate them. We talk about obituaries a lot. I love talking about people who've gone because it's a great chance to celebrate their life. Think about the books or movies or music or TV shows they did and say, hey, it's a life worth remembering. Certainly that's the case for guitarist Keith Levine. A key, if blinking you miss it figure in the UK punk rock scene of the 70s and early 80s. He died at 65. He was a music fanatic. He loved the rock group Yes so much. He even worked as a roadie for the progressive rock icons, but that's as close as he ever got to traditional rock and roll. He was in a band for two minutes with Sid Vicious before Sid left to form the Sex Pistols. Then he was an original member of The Clash, along with his manager helping convince singer Joe Strummer to join the band, a key get. But he's like, these guys can't play. And he left the band before their first album was released, though he did have a song credit on it. Then he and Sid Vicious, after Vicious uh, Sex Pistols imploded, I guess, he and Vicious and Ja Wobble formed Public Image Limited. Their debut album was sort of as expected, but their second album drew upon the art rock of German bands like Can, uh, the thumping bass that Wobble brought to the group, and Levine's brittle guitar to create a sound that influenced bands for generations to come. Think like Velvet Underground, uh, but even louder. You know, not a lot of people bought their albums, but everybody formed a band. Heroin sadly sidelined his career, but at this point, helping form The Clash and his work with Sid Vicious, his work was done. Yeah, I mean, Pill, come on. Yeah. Big band. Exactly. And, you know, then we have, uh, I, I wasn't very familiar with comedian Gallagher. I mean, I-, I you, Did you not have Showtime growing up? I did not, no. I guess you were, too, you were too young, I guess. Yeah, no, I did not. I mean, I did, but, I mean, sorry, I, 
I had, yeah, no, I, I'm, I was old enough to have Showtime, but I'd never had it. I, well, he was the, I had HBO. He was the self, he was the self-dubbed Wizard of Odd. He's a stand-up comic, Gallagher. He died at 76. He was a superstar back in the era when comics, following in the wake of Steve Martin, who's still doing good work, behaved more like rock stars than stand-ups. They played big arenas. They sold lots of albums and so on. He did the very first comedy special for Showtime, and then he did like 10 more. And he was, of course, famous, very famous, for smashing up produce. He hated produce, especially watermelon. He would put on goggles, get a big sledgehammer, and smash up a watermelon at the end of the show. Somehow, when Letterman drops a watermelon off the side of a building, I think it's hilarious. When Gallagher did it, I was like, that's stupid. (laughs) Not fair. Not fair, but it's true. Was he harmless? Kind of. Sort of. Until he wasn't. A poor man's George Carlin. Gallagher also played with words. Most famously saying, if pro is the opposite of con, does that mean progress is the opposite of Congress? Fair enough. I, I could live off that one for a while. But really, it was mostly about smashing up watermelons. Then in later years, he got really old, and his racism and homophobia and dismissiveness towards women wasn't so funny anymore. It got, from guaranteed laughs, it got embarrassed silence. Sample joke. After littering the stage with trash in 2010, we're not talking 1980 or something as if nobody knew it was wrong then, but 2010, he said, hey, look around. See any Mexicans? Uh, they'll be here later for the cleanup. Hilarious. Nah. Yeah. That's kind of like uh, Dave Chappelle was on Saturday Night Live. And some of his Uh stuff was funny. But then there were some moments where it was like crickets because it was just like, yeah, that part, not funny. Yeah. Oh, a lot of Jews in Hollywood. Uh, Hilarious. Yeah. There are, and there's a reason. They weren't allowed many other places, and they formed it themselves. Yes, kind <laughs> anyway, of like banks. Why are there so many Jews in banking? Because they weren't allowed to do anything else, and no one else was allowed to be in finance. So yes, Jews are in banking. <laughs> That's because of the racism that formed them for centuries. Yes. Anyway, Brazilian singer Gal Costa died at 77. Are you familiar with her at all? She's yes. a major Brazilian talent, key member of the Tropicalia movement. She released albums for... Uh, almost 60 years from 1967 to 2021 that's 54 years i could hear she you doing the math in your head you were like yeah 2021 that's gotta be like I'm 50. Yeah, yeah exactly she collaborated and recorded and performed with everyone including milton nascimento gilberto gill and her very good friend caetano veloso she was bisexual in a world where that was not safe or easy her debut album, Domingo, was also a recording debut for Veloso, and her second album, eponymously titled Gal Costa from 1969, is considered a classic, and that's where you should start. What is Tropicalia? It's a political and artistic and social movement in Brazil. It embraced all styles of music, from bossa nova and samba to rock and soul and jazz, but it was also extremely political and progressive and activist. It wasn't just, we're making music, it was, we need to change the world. Did you ever watch uh, Batman the Animated Series? I did not, but I can tell you that a lot of my colleagues were very upset. They were really down and depressed about hearing about actor Kevin Conroy, who they a lot of people 66? say was the Batman. He he, and I don't mean the Batman. I mean he was Batman. He was the, he created the voice in that series, and everybody just copied him afterwards. That's right. He did some live roles in his career. He was on Cheers for two episodes. He had an arc on the very underappreciated Vietnam drama Tour of Duty and a recurring role on the soap opera Search for Tomorrow. But he'll be remembered forever as the best Batman of them all. Literally, 
He voiced the character of Bruce Wayne and the Cape Crusader for the DC show Batman, the animated series from 1992 to 1995. And actor Mark Hamill from Star Wars, he enjoyed huge acclaim for his voice work as the Joker in those original 85 episodes. That version of Batman, kind of sexy, kind of adult, meant for kids, but boy, you can just watch it and go, that's pretty sexy. Um, That version is considered the best adaptation of them all by many fans and critics alike. He went on to voice Batman in all sorts of animated shows and video games, including 14 films and 400 episodes of various shows. If they needed Batman, he showed up. He also wrote a memoir about what it was like to be Batman in his, you know, uh, in his 30s, I think, while realizing at the same time he'd had his own secret identity as a gay man. He did Batman for about 30 years, and you can watch the first three seasons on HBO Max. Oh, okay. Uh, They haven't taken it off, like, uh, with the Sesame Streets? I'm just <laughs> not yet. Okay. Not yet. Okay. Uh, Jeff Cook. Did you? You know, I don't know a lot about the band Alabama, to be honest. Uh, Sweet. No, that's not them. That's not them. Yeah, that's right. True. That's not them. They're they're Grammy winning, CMA winning, big big band. Jeff Cook was a guitarist. He died at seventy three. He was a co founder of Alabama, one of the biggest country acts of all times. It dominated the charts during the eighties, scoring some forty number one country hits. That's a lot of hits. They're one of the rare bands to win the coveted Entertainer of the Year Award at the CMAs, just like Luke Combs did. They did it three years in a row, 82, 83, and 84. I was a kid. I worked at the Publix grocery store. And late at night or early in the morning, you had to mop or clean up or get ready. They'd play country stations and other stuff. Whoever the manager was, that dictated what the music was. I heard a lot of Alabama, including Tennessee River, Song of the South, and Love in the First Degree. You're guilty of Love in the First Degree. Oh, boy. <laughs> but they forever kicked themselves when Leonard Skinner recorded Sweet Home Alabama. They were like, damn it, <laughs> that should have been ours. They sold tens, tens of millions of albums. And if you consider the Eagles to be rock, which is questionable, then Alabama is the most successful country band in history. Wow. Okay. So what about the most successful improv artist? Okay. Give me a setting, like a school or a church or something. Uh, 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 like a setting? Okay. How about uh, the polling place? <laughs> there you go. You're looking at, Good luck. You're not looking at the script. <laughs> okay. Now give me an emotion. Uh, anger. All right, all right, now give me a problem. The person in front of you... No, now you can't look at the script anymore. We're at a polling place. The person in front of you can't make up their mind who they're going to vote for. (laughs) <laughs> okay here goes um all right anyway this is a tenant all right this, all right n- i'm very upset you need to just pick your ballot and vote and get out of the line so i can vote but never mind i'm not counting oh lord almighty you've ruined everything Sperling. <laughs> hey you think <laughs> that's not, the, not, that's not the first time i've heard i've heard that all the time <laughs> right so it ain't easy to improvise and it's making me angry that I'm trying to improvise. I'm not good at it because I'm already upset because Bud Friedman, the founder of the Improv Comedy Club, died at 90. He just celebrated his 90th birthday with a big party, which presumably was unplanned. Ooh, okay. He did the improv in New York. Then he did another one in LA. And I don't know if there were more everywhere else, whether it was a chain, but the improv, a lot of people got their breaks there. A lot of people got their start. We're talking about comedians. I mean, this was a comedy Comedy club. club, Comedy club, stand-up setting. Absolutely. Uh, So I know we're kind of making a joke about improv, but the reality is that wasn't what was done there. I mean, yeah, maybe sometimes, but it was mostly like Robin Williams at the improv, you know, that kind of 
thing. Yeah, they also did improv too. Yeah, John Aniston. I, I think that uh, I never, I did not, uh, I kind of o- always forget that Jennifer Aniston had a had an actor father. That's right. He died at eighty nine. He played the Greek crime boss Victor Kyriakos on the daytime soap Days of Our Lives for more than three decades. Finally, earning an Emmy nomination in twenty seventeen. What a Greek crime boss was doing in New Salem, uh, only fans know for sure. But he had roles in other stuff. He almost won the role of Ted Baxter in the Mary Tyler Moore show. But he loved his career in daytime. His quote, I like this, soap operas have just the right amount of recognition, he said. You get just enough to satisfy your ego, but not enough to disrupt your life. Whereas some people, my daughter being one of them, can't go anywhere. He was, of course, the father of Jennifer Aniston, the star of Friends. And the character of Joey won a recurring role on Days of Our Lives while he was on it. In season two of the smash hit, he played Dr. Drake Ramora until he fell down an elevator shaft. So that was kind of funny. (laughs) I'm dead? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) We were talking about Batman before and comic book artist. Oh, by the way, we just saw this in, speaking of fathers of actors, uh, the Indian actor Krishna, the Telugu film star of the 1980s, has died at 79. That just came in. He is the father of... Harry? Uh, uh, current star Mahesh Babu. Okay. And uh, he, he had a lot of big roles, including one of his best-known roles is as Raju, a freedom fighter in Andhra Pradesh. And that's the same role recently played by another actor in the current hit film RRR. So that big Indian film, if you watch that on Netflix, this guy, Krishna, played that character decades ago in a really big film. But he died at 79. His, he's the father of a big star right now. So uh, we give our sympathies to the family. Do I, do I not get any of- credit for jumping in there with Harry? Harry, you said the father of that was, Harry, that, Harry Krishna. No. <laughs> oh, I didn't get it. <laughs> Come oh, on. Thank you for being, thank you for being sacrilegious. What? Anyway, so uh, uh, comic book artist Kevin O'Neill died at 69. And if we're talking about a comic book figure, you can be sure they're a biggie because we don't know a lot about comic books. That's certainly true of O'Neill. He's a legendary British talent. He got to start as a kid, a teenager, working as an office boy for IPC, the International Publishing Company, a business only slightly less anonymously named than Acme. IPC. I mean, whatever. When they launched a sci-fi-themed anthology, he leaped at the chance to create the first cover, contribute to Judge Dredd, and ultimately launch characters like Nemesis the Warlock and Martial Law. He was radically innovative, I love this story. In 86, he was doing an early collaboration with the giant Alan Moore on a Green Lantern Corps annual. The Comics Code Authority had to sort of approve everything, and they objected strenuously to the -the over-the-top depiction of violence in the comic book. That's what O'Neill was known for. Just crazy, radical, Rococo, no holds barred. And the comic book people are like, well, can we run it with a disclaimer? Can we put a label on it? They're like, no, there's nothing that can be done to make his drawing acceptable. Nothing. He loved it. He loved it. He and Moore went on to co-create the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I should drop the the. It's just League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. A sort of Justice League with literary characters like Captain Nemo, the Invisible Man, and the like. It evolved into one of the most acclaimed and wide-ranging series in all of comicdom. Alan Moore recently retired from comics to focus on writing, and O'Neill, who kind of joked, wow, I don't want to work with anyone else. If I'm not working with Moore, you know, nobody can match that. And he kept drawing right up to the end. So God bless and good night. You know, that's, that's it for this, our 599th show. 
Wow. And so we will be back in two weeks. I say show as if, as if somehow we're like on, on, on uh, I show. Come on. Oh, the tears, light the lights. Da, 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 da. So you were saying something <laughs> no. and I totally interrupted you. That's all right. I was saying we'll be back in two weeks with our 600th episode. Oh, good point. Yes. We should probably maybe reach out to Karen Woodward and find out what she's up to. She's like, are you guys still doing the show? You guys are still doing this? Why? <laughs> Do you guys get paid now? You don't? Oh. Uh, it's yeah. sort of our charity work. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, but you know what? You don't want to miss the 600th episode. So definitely subscribe in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. You know, definitely you know, subscribe, rate, review the show where you can. It helps us out when you do. You can find that information as well as links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That is also where you'll find- And if you follow us on Facebook, we will, uh, you know, we'll try to do box office for next week when we're not on the air, tell you what the worldwide box office was like. So check us out on Facebook or Twitter. Yeah, well, Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle. Facebook is facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. And- you can also find us uh, on email, dirt at showbizsandbox.com is how you can contact us and write to us, D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail, 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. Again, all this information on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT. They need a new album, darn it. Their website is whoismgmt.com. Michael Giltz has a website, and every week it's, it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? It's Harry's house. We just live in it.com. I think you may have used that one already, but you know what? Oh, well, it's, it's, Harry's, it's Harry's and your daughter's house. Apparently. They'll be roomies in, in a nice way, in a friendly way. Yeah, well, she's got to move out if she's not going to college. So, yeah. Right. Um, you know what? If you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry there, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until two weeks from now, play nice. <laughs>